Hey, how are you? Uh, this is Dave Broadbeck. I'm going to get technical doctor Dave Broadbeck. And I'm going to tell you about, in the following lecture, Psychology 2606, or Biology 2606, whatever you prefer. Introduction to Behavioral Neuroscience for the Winter 2024 term. Don't say 2024. Stop talking like that. You never said 1,993. Of course, most of you weren't born yet, but we didn't. So, anyway. Uh, right, so here's the lecture. Hope you enjoy it. If you don't, don't really care, as long as you learn something. So, previously on Psychology 2606, we talked about our solid sensation of movement, how we have receptors for various things. You know, light, sound, smell, touch, taste, uh, pain, cold, heat. So we've got all these things that, um, so we receive information from there, from these cells, specialized cells for detecting uh, these environmental stimulus. How does movement work? Okay, so think about movement. Um, we've got a neuron that synapses onto, onto an end plate, not just going to be one, but neuron synapse on the end plates. Okay? And that, then these have really big ion channels. Uh, because these are basically, we're going to be releasing neuron, uh, neurotransmitter on the muscles to make them contract. You want really big channels here because you want movement to happen quickly when, when, when your nervous system wants you to move, you should move. There shouldn't be a lot of lag, right? You would hope there'd be no lag. All right. So this is mediated by the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. Okay? So acetylcholine. Um, So an acetylcholine antagonist can cause paralysis. So a classic here is uh, curare, C-U-R-A-R-E, curare, curare. And so these are just for me and Sue. Uh, and, uh, that's a natural thing that's found in plants in South America. That's all I know. Don't ask me more. No uh, cure, right? But the way this works is if you, if you block acetylcholine, you can't move. Right? So when you're going to move, acetylcholine is released from the synaptic cleft and it binds to the acetylcholine receptor. Uh, and the signal gets, trans you get transmission of the signal. Uh, the, then what happens is the acetyl group is taken off of the, of the acetylcholine, so you just end up with what's called choline inside the neuron. Uh, and don't worry too much about how this works, but acetylcholenzyme A, I've never been asked about this, but acetylcholenzyme A, uh, Breaks that down. It's the same thing that's used in the alcohol metabolism, actually. Every, whenever you drink a beer, acetylcholine is also activated. A lot of enzymes in humans do, and other animals do lots of different things. And plants, too. Um, so, what happens then is if you block. If you, yeah, if you block the acetylcholine, you get it. Uh, Paralysis. If you block one of the enzymes that breaks down acetylcholine, you never break down the acetylcholine, obviously. So what happens in that case is you die. That's how nerve gas works. That's how serine, for example, works. Let's say RIN is a nerve gas, a really scary nerve gas. You don't want to be around uh, ever. If anybody says, I've got some serine, you go, okay, I'll be over here. And when you say over here, it's another town. Go away. Uh, serine, like a microgram on your skin, can cause bad things. It's scary stuff. It's a chemical weapon. Um, so, 
And what happens there is it blocks acetylcholine esterase. It doesn't block, it doesn't break down the acetylcholine. So then if you don't break down the acetylcholine, your muscles all go rigid. And you die. Because everything is flexing at the same time you die. It's an extremely unpleasant way to die, apparently, too. I got there's a lot of pleasant ways to die, but I don't think that would be up there on the ones I want. It's also a snake that works. It's not really as concentrated as sarin gas. So yeah, I mentioned curare and sarin. Yeah, that's the two things I'm going to just say. All right. So let's look at how we measure this neural activity. How do we measure it? Because it's not like patch clamp. We talk about patch clamps. Let's talk about, let's, let's get into measuring um, the whole brain's activity. The oldest form of brain imaging is the electroencephalogram or the EEG. <coughs> this one's got It's probably 128 channels. That's just a guess. They tend to be in multiples of eight. It looks like it's 64 on one side, so I'm assuming 64 and 64. They're basically going to look at cortical stuff only. You're not going to get really deeper stuff because it just looks at changes in electrical potentials on your scalp. The nice thing about it is you don't. Hit, it's completely non-invasive, right? So we take this, put this on your head, and you can make these yourself. You wouldn't need, I mean, it wouldn't be a use, use, but you could actually take a thing. You could put two electrodes on your forehead and get a, a, a signal. It's the same way that, you know, I have a heart monitor that I use for when I'm working out. Actually, more than one, because I'm me and I just, I'm an idiot and I spend money on things. Um, actually, I hardly ever spend money myself. But anyway, works the same way. It's got two little electrodes here just go on, on my chest. Same thing on your head. Okay? Uh, this isn't going to be super useful for diagnostic things. Might tell us maybe when someone's going to have an epileptic seizure, but it doesn't isolate it very well. There are some things it does really well, though. You could do like brain-computer interface stuff. And Dr. Townsend, George Townsend in science, does this kind of work, where you basically teach yourself to think about something and then something happens, and the software then learns what it means, like what, what kind of waveform pattern you get from a person who's thinking about, for example, saying a word. Think about how valuable this kind of stuff can be for someone who's paralyzed, right? Imagine somebody who's paralyzed, but they're, they, they, you know, think of somebody with ALS like Stephen Hawking was, right? And Stephen Hawking had to do it by using his eye to look at stuff. But imagine if you could just do it where you put it on your head and you could just think the words you want to say and make them out of the speaker. Right? Pretty amazing. So this has real world applications as well. And like I said, you could make one of these with parts from Rainbow Shack. Or the source by Circuit City, really they call Rainbow Shack. All right. Now, CAT scans, we're going to go basically from, yeah, this is the next thing that happened technologically. The CAT scan is basically a whole bunch of x-rays. And then the computer puts all these x-rays together and builds a nice model of a, head, of a, of a brain. Okay. So this is going to tell us about form. It doesn't say about function. Whereas the EEG tells us about function. It doesn't about form. This tells us about form and not function, but that's actually a pretty look at that. This guy's head isn't cut in half, but that's a sagittal slice of a brain. It's beautiful, isn't it? Okay, the next one, we're getting going more and more complicated and more and more expensive. This is a PET scanner positron emission tomography. Whenever I think of CAT scan, I think of that line by Pauly in The Sopranos, and he says, Cat scans, dog scans, everything. Love it. Just want to get this name right, so I'm looking this up. Okay, so when you go in for a, pa a cat scan, you get a drink, and it's fluorodeoxyglucose, FDG. F just say FDG, it's long. At the hospital, they just say FDG, too. 
Um, and the nice thing about that is it's radioactive. So you have, basically it's radioactive cooling. So it's glucose, and your brain needs all kinds of glucose. So when your brain does something, it's going to take that glucose out, right? Makes sense, doesn't it? Ah, but if we know where the glucose is, how do we do that? We make the glucose radioactive. So you don't do this every day. This is, uh, this is technically a, an invasive procedure, isn't it? Because you're getting radiation in your head and rest your body. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't have two. But if you're going to get a CAT scan and it's not a life-saving situation, the first thing you'll be asked is, have you had any x-rays this year? And most of us will be like, well, I had one for going to the dentist once and before. If you said I've had 30, they'll go, oh, okay. I don't know. On the other hand, if it's a life or death thing, they don't really ask those questions. Right? When my dad had his brain cancer, one of the things they did, they did a PET scan, and they didn't, I, I asked my mom, I said, did they uh, ask if you'd had any x-rays? And my mom said, no. I said, yeah, they wouldn't in this situation, because it doesn't really, you know. Now, why, how does, what does the computer do? It makes, uh, it takes a look at where we get activity. How do we know there's activity? Okay, a thing happens. The glucose, because it's radioactive, it, we end up with uh, a special kind of beta decay, and you end up with positrons, which is kind of cool because they're positive electrons being going up from the brain. And before they hit even a millimeter, they run into an electron, and they annihilate each other, and that's what you're seeing there. So the darker red colors, the hotter colors means more activity, the cool colors mean less activity. Why is this arrow pointed here? I don't know. I typed in PET scan picture into the internet and found a picture. But I could guess. Probably because everything else there looks symmetrical. That doesn't. There's something different here. And that's, looks like temporal lobe. Yeah. What could you do with this? You could show somebody different stimuli and see how their, their brain is acting. Very cool. Very cool stuff. MRI is the best. That's the fun one. Magnetic resonance imaging. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So is it a PET scan or a PET scan you use the radioactive? Yeah. So MRIs, we used to call them nuclear magnetic resonance imaging, but then everybody got afraid because they heard the word nuclear. And I'm not kidding. It was called nuclear magnetic resonance imaging, and the nuclear part here isn't the, but it, but nuclear, it's about the nucleus of cells. The people are like, I don't want to go in here into the nuclear. Let's take that word out. Okay. Oh, those are great. These were amazing. It was rebranded basically in the late 80s. So, functional magnetic resonance imaging, or just magnetic resonance imaging, relies on the fact that if you run a really set of powerful, they set of really powerful magnets, um, when cells are, when neurons, for example, are firing, their nuclei, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Vibrate at a different frequency than they do when they're not firing. And by doing that, you can actually watch firing happen. You can watch activity in the brain. Now, you can use an MRI for other stuff too. You can use it to look at your knee or something. It's, it's fun. You always all often hear about you know athletes when they get injured, they're going to get an MRI. They're not doing it on their brains. They're, they're, you know, somebody gets an arm injury, they MRI their arm. It's just it's better. Look at the level of detail. It's beautiful. Than like a an X-ray. It's to the point now where we can look at people's activity in their occipital lobe and guess what they're seeing. Now, it's not perfect. And the stimulus that people have recognized so far is the word neuron, which is great, written out in a 100, sorry, is it 100? Yeah, 100 by 100 pixel thing. So it's not like it's super detailed. We're, at, we're not even close to any place yet where we can figure out what you're, what you're seeing by holding something up to the back of your head. I don't know what you're saying, it's right there. 
But that day will come. We will be able to watch people's dreams. Which is really freaking cool. I don't know why you do it other than to record it. The only reason I would, I would, you know. And then what you do is you post it at DreamTube and then somebody comments, the first comment will say something racist because it's YouTube. And then after that, like eight comments after that, someone writes first. <laughs> uh, and then a few more, of some little Obama, even though he hasn't been president since 2016. Yeah, that's how it'll go. Oh, and then somebody will say fake. Somewhere it says fake. I can't believe, what kind of writing is this? Like all that'll happen. But we will be able to see people's dreams. Not anytime super soon, but that's gonna happen in, I'll say our lifetime. It'll happen when I'm still around. Not that that's that valuable. The valuable thing here, obviously, is gonna be watching. I mean, most valuable thing is looking at things, instead of having to do the Dr. Penfield thing, where you poke around in your head with an electric prod, and go, oh, it's right there. Right, when my dad had his tumor, you had an MRI, and they went, oh, there it is. They didn't have to go poking around in Rick Broadback's head which was probably a pretty dark place, I guess. <laughs> Ooh, you could record from single cells. There's a, look at that. Look at that electrode going right across that little neuron here. So it's going across some dendrites or axons, I don't know which. This is clearly not being done in a person. You can do it with single cells. You can also do this looking at what are called event-related potentials. You could do this with an EEG as well, but you get, you're not just looking at a single cell in that case. So if you're doing ERP work with EEGs, you do a thing and you record what the EEG shows. With this kind of thing with a single cell, again, we're not doing this with people. We're doing this with rats, mostly, mice. This is cheap, relatively. Um, it's not. It, it, you need to know how to do it. Like I said, like something. The EEG, you could build a rudimentary EEG in a couple of hours. None of us, I don't think, could make one of these. Because we can't get the little plastic heads that are my, to my bronze stick and things like that. That's not just a thing we have. But this is a relatively cheap technology. We could look at correlates of neural firing. So there is a product of early gene expression called zinc. And zinc is released when neurons fire. Uh, that's in birds, by the way. There's a, there's a homologous one in mammals called CFOS. But I don't know much about CFOS, but I know the zinc. Uh, so what happens with zinc is, this is in white-throated sparrows, and this is when they're restless, when they're, sparrows are restless, or migratory birds are restless, when it's time to migrate. They what's called migratory restlessness. And in fact, if you take, say, a white-throated sparrow, and you put, him or her in their cage and it's around time to migrate and they're supposed to fly south, they'll actually spend all their time in the south end of the cage. That's how much they want to go south. But they hop around. And actually you just put a piece of paper down and you put ink on their feet and you actually, that's, that's how you get the data, it's trivial. So these are all birds, these are birds who are restless and we then take a look at that's these guys here? Yes. Look at how much neural firing is going on. That's all from single neurons having fired. This is the part of the brain, it uh, doesn't matter, of these stairs. And then you take a look at when they're sleeping or in the day, because these are night migrators, it's not firing. And this is happening because the birds themselves, what's that? Sorry, it's your hand there. The birds themselves, migrate using the magnetic field of the Earth. This only happens if it's at night, they have their eyes open, they're in migratory restlessness, so it's like time of year, and they can detect the Earth's magnetic field. If we put them in what's called a Faraday cage, which is 
it's all metal and then it's uh, impervious to radiation of any kind, so electromagnetic radiation as well. Uh, then we don't get this. We don't get the firing. This tells us then that birds, migratory birds, somehow use the Earth's magnetic field to navigate very long distances. And this area that's lit up here is an area called Cluster N. Cluster N. Yeah, that's your question. Um, I was wondering, because the way that marks work with regular sparrows, was there any like, noticeable difference, or was it large because of the same? These were all the same kinds of sparrows. That's how it was. But I, I can tell you that this does, has worked in all kinds of different samples. Yeah. Oh, by the way, that's not me. That's my daughter. I mean, I know the work. But that's Madeline Broadbeck. That's not David Broadbeck. David Broadbeck helped create Madeline Broadbeck, so I think I should take some credit. No. Oh, what if you could take a, a cowbird? Cowbirds are so cool. Unless you're one of their victims. But none of us are birds, so we don't care. Cowbirds are nest parasites, those bastards. So what they do is female cowbirds lay their eggs in other birds' nests. They don't make their own nests. They lay their eggs in other birds' nests. Why not, right? Well, it's an approach. Why not? There's a whole nest here. Let's lay our eggs in. Now, there's an issue, of course, what happens when the other bird notices. And like the host, if the host notices what's going on, what are we going to do? Turns out, for the most part, they don't do anything. They let the host, even though the cowbird it's going to hatch before they're young. It's going to be bigger than their young, and when they're not looking, it's going to try to kill their young. And you think, well, why do they let that bird in there? Um, because if they don't, the cowards come around and just kill all their young anyway. And the reason that this hypothesis is actually called the Soprano hypothesis, based on the TV show The Sopranos. It's basically like the cowbirds are the mafia. You're real shame if something happened to you in a family. Which is why I love when stuff like that happens. My goal in life is to, is to discover something and somehow name it after someone in Mad Men. So the thing is, the female birds have to know where nests are. Because when they're ready to lay eggs, they're ready to lay eggs. So the females actually have bigger hippocampus than the males. Spatial memory, they have to know where all the nests are. What if we could, so people have looked at, sorry, I should back up, look at how males are not as good as females at spatial tasks in cowbirds, which goes against the opposite of how it always goes. It's almost always that males are better than females, but not in specialized things like cowbirds. So cowbirds have this nice big hippocampus. What if we could shut their hippocampus down and then turn it back on? Like, it's easy to shut it down, go in, just do that. Not quite that massively, usually going very precisely and using chemicals to destroy part of the brain. But then you've destroyed the brain forever, that part of the brain. But what if we could reversibly make it so that hippocampus didn't work? Well, what if we put a piece of metal right on their hippocampus and then ran a loop that cooled it down? And it cooled it down so much that it couldn't work, but not so much that it so you could then turn it back on. So let's see if we can do that. Oh, I happen to have video of this happening right now. Okay, so here's the cooling loop here. This is in a cowbird brain. And this is infrared uh, photography. So the, 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 the brighter the color, the hotter the color, the hotter the brain is. Is it going on? Start now that I've clicked on it. Is it starting? No, it's not. Oh, there it goes. There it goes. This is in real time, but this is actually watching this happen in real time. So this is basically now going to shut down hippocampus until we turn it back on. Now, 
am I saying that this method is useful for doing things with humans? Well, clearly not. Unless somebody wants me to drill holes in their head and implant this. Yeah. I wouldn't trust me to do that. It's one of the many reasons I wouldn't trust Elon Musk to put something in my head. Besides, you know, that he's an Nazi. Um, look at that, though. Cooled right down in about 90 seconds. That's more work by my daughter than that one's All right. So, any questions on that stuff about how we measure some of this stuff, either directly or indirectly? Okay, so let's conclude this section and we can move on to synapses and neurotransmitters. He said, looking at the time. Yeah, we're good. Okay. So within neurocommunication neuro, neuro is basically an electrochemical, and, and there's lots of ways to measure this. That's the two big take-homes from this. Any questions on this stuff before we move on? And yes, this turns out this was a great place for me to talk about how smart my kids. So that's what I did. And you might say, we well, shouldn't do that, Dave. You can say, okay, I say, okay, I won't. I'm actually, no, I'm going to keep doing it. You can talk about your kid when you have a kid who goes, I wish school work. Okay, let's move over and talk about synapses and neurotransmitters. So this is about biochemical activity, right? So here's a really cool experiment. Uh, this is from 1921, a long time ago. Jeez, over 100 years ago. Otto von Levy uh, did this really neat experiment in 1921. What he did was he, he stimulated the vagus nerve in a frog. That's the nerve that uh, slows your heart down. So it did. So he did this with electrical, uh, like with an electrical, with an electrode. Uh, I can tell you that this wasn't pretty research. The, the frog was still alive and it was cut open and pinned to a board. It's not nice. It was also over 100 years ago. We don't do work like that anymore. Don't go protest his work, because he's dead. So is that frog. So he washed the heart with a solution, and he collected the solution. The solution, of course, was uh, cherry Kool-Aid. No, it was, it was just, it was saline. Come on. Uh, so he collected that, and then he poured it, the solution on a second heart, which, of course, was in a second frog that was still alive and came to a board like this. And it's slow. That's pretty neat. That's a neat result. <laughs> See, the idea was everyone knew there was electrical stuff going on. Everybody knew. We talked about Hodgkin and Huxley and all these and sharing things. Everybody knew that there was electrical activity in a neuron. People figured there must be something chemical going on, they didn't know what it was. So this was a way to find it out, let's collect the chemical. So, because he was German, he called it Vegastoff, because German's weird language that way, and it just makes, uh, it's kind of cool in a way, because all they do in German is they combine words to make more words. I think I told you guys that the German word for glove is Handschuh, Handschuh. They have no word for glove. We've got a word handshoe. That's fine. That's good. Describes it. Good. Done. Next. It's like the word for 90 in French. Capital of any this. Oh, 42010? What? <laughs> when you think about it for a second, huh? Unless you're in Switzerland, where they don't say that. They don't use that. It's, it's weird. Swiss French is somewhat different. Anyway, so it's actually acetylcholine. Acetylcholine. I wish we would have kept the name Vega Stuff. It's a great name, but it's a choline molecule with an acetyl group, so that's a better description still. So later he stimulated another heart to speed it up and used the same method, and he ended up with another sped up, no, a sped up heart, and he called that, well, he didn't call it that, but what he collected there was epinephrine, or what some people call adrenaline. 
You can't call it adrenaline when it's a hormone, so it's in your bloodstream, and epinephrine when it's in your nervous system. On that, like, generally people do that. If you've ever been in a very intense experience of, uh, like, a fight or flight thing, you've, you've tasted adrenaline, it has kind of a metallic taste. Like, there's so much produced that you can taste it. I'm sure he called this one speeds up and heart and stuff, but you know, whatever. It's epinephrine. I have to find out how to say speeds up the heart stuff in German. It's probably not that different from what I just said. Anybody here speak German? No? Let's do that. Because then I can ask. All right. So, the gap between an axon and a dendrite, <coughs> a bunch of other ones, uh, is. Don't worry, there's six other kinds of synapses we'll get to in a second. But that gap we call a synapse, right? And it's about 20 to 40 nanometers. It's a small gap. Like it's like, it's a billionth of a meter, right? An nanometer, so it's pretty small. Neurotransmitter molecules are released across that gap to the next neurotran to the next neuron. And sometimes if all the neurotransmitter isn't taken in by the next neuron, it's taken back up by the originating neuron, and that's called reuptake. These are great, by the way, the synapse is where drug interactions happen. Like every psychoactive drug you can think of does stuff at the synapse. Try to think of any that don't. I know all the ones we talk about in neuropharmacology are all working at the synapse, for example. And reuptake is one of the phases of synaptic uh, transmission, nervous transmission that is often used. You can think of, for example, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like flexitin, Prozac. Uh, you could think of selective dopamine reuptake inhibitors like cocaine, if you wanted to. There's also ones that are much less intense that we prescribe for things, but there's also cocaine. So we have three pools of neurotransmitters. So the originating neuron has three different pools of neurotransmitters. It has the ready releasable ones. Those are right at the end of axon, they're ready to be released, hence the name ready releasable. It's a good thing. There are ones that are recycling, they're moving around in the axon. These are all in vesicles. Vesicles are bubbles that are made of the same stuff as cell membranes, and they hold, in this case, molecules of neurotransmitter, they hold eh, 120 to 150 molecules of neurotransmitter. It's not a lot. So those ones are rotating around, they're moving around the axon, and then there are, there's the reserve, and those are in the nucleus. They are in a, they're being made, basically. So these things are in these vesicles. and they float around, waiting to fire. Some of them are right at the terminal, and they're ready to be released. So what happens when neurotransmitter is released? Well, neurotransmitter is released because an action potential. So there's been an action potential. What are we gonna do? Well, we're gonna take some of those neurotransmitters, the ready releasable ones, and release them into the synapse. Draw a picture here. So if that's the uh, that's an axon, there are 
vesicles full of neurotransmitters, bubbles basically, floating around. When there's been an action potential, one or more of these vesicles will fuse with the cell membrane and collapse. So if one of these comes along, and then it just goes like this, the next one, come up. This is done using um, a protein called SNARE. You'll see what it's called. Well, it's called SNARE because it stands for Soluble uh, NSF Attachment Protein Receptor. But it's called that because it's got a, because it's basically a loop that pulls the vesicle. And then they said it's a snare. Now, what are we going to say that stands for? Look, well, that's what happened. Call it backroom, right? You look at the word first, then you go, what does that, what does that, mean that stand for? So that's what happened here. Um, and there's two different kinds, and I'll show you a picture of a snare protein in a second. But either this whole thing collapse, collapse just like I'm showing here. So this comes along and it fuses with the, it creates what's called a fusion pore. It fuses with the cell membrane and collapses and releases the neurotransmitter and then it reforms and goes away. And it's it. Or you can get what's called kiss and run fusion. So you either get full collapse fusion or kiss and run fusion. Kiss and run happens where the whole vesicle doesn't collapse. It just kisses the uh, cell membrane very quickly it releases it and keeps going. Kiss and run's gonna be faster than full collapse fusion. So kiss and run enables more efficient vesicle recycling because the vesicle stays with, okay, it's easier to do that. Uh, and it's easier then for it to limit the amount of neurotransmitter release because it's a smaller fusion point. Look. So here's what's going on. There's your snare protein. It grabs onto the cell membrane. So these are two different cells. This is one neuron here. This is the other neuron up here. It goes up here, grabs a hold of the cell membrane, and pulls it open, basically. So it goes up here, opens it up, and we get a release of neurotransmitter. So it's attached to the cell membrane of the originating cell. It then, when there is an action potential, it grabs onto the cell membrane, rips it open. I mean, it doesn't really rip it open. Very quickly opens it. This happens in milliseconds. Uh, and grabs onto a vesicle, kiss and run, or full collapse, releases, and it's done. And it's like it's undoing a zipper, basically. Biochemistry and biophysics at this level is so freaking cool. Like that's really neat, right? And that's happening constantly. Like it's happening even right now, and it's happening lots. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Here's another picture. So we have a porosome here. There's the fusion pore snare rosette. That's just a little, it's a little rosette. It basically just opens like that. I'll show you a better picture of one in a sec. And the secretory vesicle comes along, bang, bang, releases it, and then it closes back up. This is something that now people have seen happen. This was something for the longest time you couldn't see because it's so quick, and uh, microscopy wasn't where it is today. No one's at, uh, for full collapse, still nobody's actually seen it happen. But you know what we have seen? Cell membranes getting bigger by exactly the length of an entire vesicle, so we know that the thing's collapsing. Where else would that happen? Kiss and run, you can watch, because it goes, it just drops it off. Full collapse, I don't think anybody's ever seen. 
for a good time, good amount of time, people thought kiss and run was a myth. That can't be real, that can't be real. And so it's happening right now. Oh, okay, it's real. But for a long time, people didn't believe it was real. Right, this is between 10 and 15 nanometers, again, very small. To get an idea of like, we, we can't fathom things that small is what I'm saying. It's not small enough that there's weird quantum things happening, but it's still pretty small. Okay, so here's just another example. We're gonna form a fusion core. You see what's happening here? Full collapse fusions here, kiss and runs here. You see the difference? They're related, they're both doing the same thing. One's quicker and it's gonna release less neurotransmitter, and that's kiss and run. The fact that this is happening constantly is, again, as I said, just to me, it's mind-boggling. It's very cool. Very cool. Questions? Okay, very nice. So here's some more diagrams. There's a lot of variation generally in synapses. So right now I'm just talking about axon and dendrite synapses. Um, some are excitatory. We talk about type, very generally people talk about type one and type two synapses. And excitatory synapses are called type one, inhibitory or type two. So, the type one, type two thing, excitatory versus inhibitory, is that it affected or is it related to the shape? It's got something to do with it, probably, because GABA synapses are inhibitory, and they have less postsynaptic thickening. They're not as thick. So it seems like there's a relationship there. Don't know if it's just a byproduct of what neurotransmitters are being used or what. And glutamate synapses, as you know, are, oh, you just talk about that, great, thanks. Glutamate synapses are, have more thickening, uh, and more vessels. So far, I've only told you about one, but I keep going, axon dendrite, axon dendrite, because there's more than one. There's seven kinds of neurotransmitters. The weird thing, you're gonna find there's this weird magical number of neuroscience called seven. And I don't know why it really has seven things, it just seems to happen. So here's the seven kinds. So let's take a look at some of these. Uh, before we do that, I'll just say that this depends on what they're going to be doing, obviously. Um, we teach you about axodendritic synapses. That's axon to dendrite. The first part of the name of a synapse is where the neurotransmitter comes from. The second name is where it goes. So axodendritic is axon to dendrite. And I think we talk about those because they're incredibly common and they're easy to think about. But there's others. Let's see what we got, right? We got dendrodendritic. What? You can have synapses from one dendrite to another? Yes. Now that look, this one here, that's in the same that's in the same neuron. Oh, we can transfer neurotransmitter from one part of a dendrite to another. Maybe this is gonna quickly make transmission happen. Uh, what's this one? This is axo. Oh, that's axodendritic, that's the one we know about. Axodendrite. Axo extracellular. This is going into the extracellular fluid from an axon. It's still a synapse. It's a synapse when it releases neurotransmitter. That's what's called a that's what a chemical synapse is. Axoaxonic. That's one axon to another axon. 
Oh, this one here is also, this one here, axosynaptic. Axon to another, like synapsing onto another synapse. Again, I hope you can see why rewiring somebody's brain can't happen. Too many possible connections. And what's this one? Oh, that's, uh, oh yeah, axo-axonic, I talked about that. Axo-secretory, that's, we just talked about how movement works. That's a little like this. So seven kinds of synapses. We can talk just about axo-pancreatic because, like I said, they're easier to understand. And when you're in intro cycle, you don't want to confuse you. It's the same thing we do with when you were told in grade seven that the electrons rotated around protons and planets around the sun. Wait, that's not true? That's not true. Question. Okay, one more slide. Oh look, there's the number seven again. There are seven stages of nervous transmission. Synthesis. Now you don't always make neurotransmitters from, like your, your neurons don't always make neurotransmitters on their own. Sometimes they'll take neurotransmitters from food. Like when you eat, they're just chemicals and you might eat them some. Like if you've eaten anything with monosodium glutamate, you're basically eating a sodium weakly bound to a glutamate molecule, and you eat monosodium glutamate all the time. But very often you also make your own, you synthesize. Then we store it, we store it in vesicles, we know that, right? Then we release it, maybe with kiss and run, maybe for collapse fusion, but we release it. Receptor interaction, so the receptor it's going to interact with has a binding site and the neurotransmitter comes along and tries to bind to that receptor site. This, and then it's taken into the next neuron and inactivated by some enzyme or another, depending on the transmitter. Uh, if it doesn't get used originally, so if you're next, so sometimes it doesn't bind. And these things are expensive. Brains are expensive, nervous systems are expensive metabolically. Making neurotransmitters is expensive metabolically. So if they don't get used, then they take it back up into the originating neuron. Okay. They are all taken up, some get, they degrade, they basically get inactivated by an enzyme in the synapse. Reasonable place to stop, and I got another class to teach. So uh, thanks, everybody. And if you haven't got your test yet, come back, and I'll see you next time. Thanks.
So thanks for listening uh, to the lecture. I hope you got something out of it, as I noted in the intro. Um, these are copyrighted, uh, share like 3.0 Canada, uh, some rights reserved, so you can redistribute this all you want, but if you redistribute it, uh, you can't make any money off of it. Uh, and also, uh, if you mash it up, I get to mash up your stuff. Uh, most of the mu the vast majority of the music I found was on an old website called GarageBand, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and then it was called PodSafe Music. So this is all music that I have, uh, that it's perfectly reasonable to uh, put on these podcasts. Uh, if you are interested, I can oftentimes find the, the name of the band. The name of the band will be listed in the post. And uh, go look these bands up and, and buy their music, because um, if they're cool enough to let me use this, you should be cool enough to pay 99 cents or whatever to buy one of their songs. Uh, on that note, I will see you next time.